Well, brothers and sisters, again, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this morning, in light of the holiday season of Christmas that is quickly, quickly upon us, and in light of the celebration of the advent of God in the flesh, that we celebrate not once a year, but each time that we gather for worship. Your elders thought that it would be fitting, uh, not necessary, but fitting, that we expound upon one of those texts that is often quoted during especially this time of the year. It is found in the ninth chapter of the evangelical prophet that is one of his most common titles and of course you know that i'm speaking about the prophet isaiah who was given eyes to see the glory of the lord jesus christ in advance isaiah prophesied of a coming savior in the seventh chapter and 14th verse of isaiah's prophecy The Lord shows Isaiah that there will be a virgin and that she will miraculously be with child. This child shall be a son, the son of God, and we will call his name Emmanuel, for he will literally be God with us and God among us. In the 11th chapter, the prophet Isaiah sees that this coming savior will be born from the line of Jesse the father of King David. He, the son, will be from the royal tribe of Judah. The Lord gave Isaiah insight into what kind of service this son, who is God with us, Emmanuel, will offer. In the 52nd and 53rd chapters of his prophecy, Isaiah sees this servant, this son, this son who is a servant, as a suffering servant. In the 14th verse of the 52nd chapter, Isaiah sees that his appearance will be marred more than any other man. He will be literally unrecognizable because of his suffering. In the 53rd chapter, he was and will be, would be despised and forsaken of men. He will be and would be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. A grief that no man, no woman has ever experienced in all of history. The sufferer, the suffering son would serve for a specific particular reason. Isaiah was and continues to be, through his writings even on to today, the evangelical prophet making the gospel known. It is interesting though, isn't it, that... The prophecies of Isaiah in connection with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, they they seem to fall into almost two categories, don't they? There are the promises that we tend to read around the time of Easter, which focus the attention on the suffering of the Messiah, the Son who will be born, Emmanuel, with us. He is the suffering servant during Easter. And by and large, that is found in the second half of Isaiah's prophecy. But while we come to the first half of his prophecy in the chapters 7, 9, and 11, 
those chapters tend to focus on the, the birth of the Messiah. And we only seem to read those chapters during the time of Advent or the time that we call Christmas. My dear brothers and sisters, even from a cursory reading of Isaiah chapter 9, it is obvious that the prophecy that is before us today is not only re relevant while we are gearing up for Christmas and some of us gearing down against Christmas, but as you read the passage, it is clear that Isaiah's prophecy is relevant not just for Christmas, not just for Easter, but it is relevant for every single age and every single time of the year. What we have before us is the completed work of Christ. And dear ones, Christ and his work should ever be upon our minds. Christ and his work should ever be upon our lips. And not just in one particular season, but in every season of every single aspect of our lives. Uh, we would do well to daily ponder upon the doing and dying and rising and ascending of our Lord Jesus Christ. It would do our souls well to set our minds on Christ and not to let a day go by where we do not thank God for his coming in our flesh so that he might redeem fallen humanity. It would appear as though man's wretchedness and our need to be rescued is one of the prophet Isaiah's underlining points here in this ninth chapter. How so? After the death of King Uzziah, Isaiah saw the Lord. It is interesting that if you were to ask Isaiah, who did you see? He would say, I saw the Lord. If you were to read the book of Revelation and ask John, who did he see when he received this magnificent revelation? He would say, I saw the Lord. The very Lord that Isaiah saw is the very Lord that John saw. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. The year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord. The Lord forgave his sin, sanctified his tongue, and set him apart as a prophet who would speak the words of God to a people who had gone backward and wayward in their worship to God. In the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah says in chapter 6 and verse 9, he said, God saying to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, keep on listening. But do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. The prophet Isaiah is speaking to an obstinate people. The prophet Isaiah was speaking to a people that were deaf in their hearing. They were dumb in their understanding. And they were hard of heart in their reception of God's word. And they will keep hearing Isaiah prophesy. They will keep hearing Isaiah speaking of the gospel, but they won't hear. 
They will keep listening, but they won't understand. They will keep having the words go through their ears, down to their hearts, and it will bounce right off because it, will, it is made of rock. Brothers and sisters, do you know anyone like that today? Brothers and sisters, you and I were like that one time, upon a time. We were hearing, but not, but not uh, hearing. We were uh, hearing, but not understanding. We were hearing, but not believing. And the prophet Isaiah cries out in an impassioned cry, How long, Lord? How long will they not hear? How long, O Lord, will they not understand? How long, O Lord, will they not believe? And each time that I hear Pastor Isaiah each morning ask you, who are you praying for? Who are you believing God for? I know that for some of you, the cry of Isaiah might be the same cry of your heart. How long, O Lord? How long will they hear and not believe? How long will they hear and not understand, Lord? How long will they be deaf, O Lord? The prophet Isaiah continues to make the gospel known. And you also should continue to make the gospel known, even though it seems as time at times as though they will never hear, as though they will never understand, as though they will never believe. Pastor Isaiah gave us encouragement this morning upon hearing upon of one of our members. Don't stop praying. As long as there is breath in their body and life in their blood, don't stop praying for them. Then the Lord showed the prophet Isaiah that there would be even darker days ahead. Imagine that. The cry of the prophet Isaiah is, how long will these people remain this way? How long will they remain in their spiritual darkness? And the Lord says to Isaiah, it's going to get darker. It's dark now. And it will get darker. Oh, dear one, if you are here this morning and you are groping about, as it were, in dark days, may I say to you that the promise is not always that light is right about the corner. But sometimes, sometimes it could be that it it will get even darker. Darker days lied ahead. And that it was the darker days that lied ahead were simply a reflection of man's darkness, man's spiritual condition. The dark days that lied ahead were a picture of men residing in darkness. The hearts of men are dark. And in order for men to see how dark their hearts are, then days must get darker. And this darkness was evident In the 19th verse of the 8th chapter, Isaiah will prophesy that rather than running to God for solution, rather than running to God for an answer to their destitute condition, the people will consult not God. The people will consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter foolishness. And we know something of that today, don't we? We know something of that in our own day. There are those who, when they are walking through darkness, they will not consult the wisdom of God contained within His holy and infallible Word, but rather they'll consult a daily horoscope in order to discover the purpose and and reasons for why all of the things that are going on in their lives are going on. 
They will turn not to God for guidance, but they will turn to the stars for guidance to determine uh, what they will do today, what they won't do today, where they will go today, where they won't go today. There are those who believe that even their attitudes and even their demeanors are a direct result not of the fall of man, but a direct result of what month they were born in. I am this way because I am a Leo after all. I am this way because I am an Aquarius after all. No, you are the way that you are because you are an Adamite after all. And his wretchedness flows through your blood. That is why you are the way that you are. And it is much like the people of Isaiah's day. Brothers and sisters, when people stop believing, when people stop believing in the true and living God, when people stop believing that his word is reliable, they will believe almost anything. May I say to you this morning that God's word will never be irrelevant to any people in any generation. I think one of the striking facts that you and I have well discovered in our time in the book of Genesis is that these people, those people in Genesis, they are so much like me, aren't they? Reading through and studying through the life of Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob, one thing that I say to myself remarkably after every time I'm done studying is that person is such a sinner, just like me. All of his warts and all of the imperfections, they are all revealed for us to see. And they remind me so much of me. And so it is with this prophecy that is before us this morning. The prophet Isaiah is speaking to a people that are much like us here in the 21st century. Though the writings are so far beyond us. They walked in darkness because of their sin. And still today, there are many who are walking in darkness because of their sin. They sought answers everywhere in, but in God. And so many today are seeking direction from everywhere and everyone but God. The people of Isaiah's day had forsaken God. And therefore, he says in chapter 8, they were beginning to experience, listen to this, the hiding of God's face. Oh, what a wretched position to be in, that God would hide his face from you. Do you know that there are certain sins that we could continue in that would cause our God to hide his face from you, that you would not, that he would not even hear your prayer? The prophet was concerned because under the judgment, the people would not only know a physical alienation from God, suffering in their own land, but soon they would be exiled from that land. Isaiah could see that what they would need under those circumstances was salvation that was from God, a Savior who was from God. And Isaiah meditates on the, and as Isaiah meditates on the physical and the political needs of the people, he begins to see that at the root of all of their needs, not just physical, not just political, 
But there was a desperately and profound spiritual need that the people had that they could not see. They believed that land was their biggest issue. That their political leaders were their biggest issue. And Isaiah is starting to see that no, it is not your land. And no, it is not your political leader. It is your relationship to God. They need, the need that they had went way beyond the fact that they would eventually be exiled into Babylon. But the people, though they were still in the promised land, they were beginning to live like people from distant lands. They were beginning to live like, like the prodigal who lived in a distant land and lived a wayward life. They were beginning to live like that. They were spiritually alienated from God, exiled from God. And the Savior that they needed was not some political conqueror to deliver them. The Savior that they needed was Emmanuel, God with us. The Savior they needed was a, divinely sa a divine Savior, a divinely given Savior who would restore with them a right fellowship with God. A Savior who would change hearts. A Savior who would bring His kingdom, His kingdom, into their lives. And oh, doesn't that ring true for us here today? While this country is presently divided among party lines, seeking to impeach, impeach its political leader, we are reminded Again, that our salvation is not found in some mighty political leader. Our salvation is not found in some strong economy. Well, this begs the question then, where then is our hope? Where then is our uh, strength and our might found? Where will we find direction amidst the darkness? The prophet Isaiah was given eyes to see that there would come a day when that dismal condition would cease. And would you notice with me the hope that emerges from the most unlikely of places in the book of Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1 through 4. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later, later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee, of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a land, a dark land, they, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of the burden, their burden, and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. Brothers and sisters, this morning... I would like to uh, consider with you three simple sections and three marvelous ways in which Isaiah grasped hold of the identity and the significance of this child, the son who is going to be born. Number one, he is the son who brings light. Number one, he is the son who brings light. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1, 
there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The child will come as a light, a light who will dispel the darkness of spiritual gloom. And would you notice that he will emerge from the most unlikely of places? The prophet foresees the day when the Savior will bring light to those places that were seen with contempt by God. Those places that were for a time forsaken by God. The Lord will bring the promised one to those forsaken land and to those forsaken peoples. The promise that there will come a day when the peoples of those lands who walked in darkness, the darkness of their sins, that they will see a great light. Brothers and sisters, have you noticed the whole backdrop of this passage is one that is described with the vocabulary of darkness. For example, in the 8th chapter and 20th verse, the people will not listen to the law of God because they do not have the light of dawn. They do not see light. They are, as it were, walking in darkness. You know the light. Light of the dawn is morning. There is no morning in their lives. They are walking about in the darkness of night. The Bible says they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness. Behold gloom of anguish and they will be driven away into darkness. Here it is again. Distress and darkness driven away into darkness. The people of Zebulun, the people of Naphtali, they walk about. They stumble about. They grope about in darkness. With an eight-month-old, I know all too well what it is to stumble about and to grope about in the darkness. It's an uncertain thing, isn't it? To be in the darkness of night, trying to make your way. To be in the darkness of night, trying to make your way is it's an uncertain thing, isn't it? It's, it's a, a thing that will make you absolutely insecure with your every step and your every, moment, your every movement. It, it's a thing that will cause you to be alarmed at the fact that the door that you are reaching for is actually two feet to the right. It's a very uncertain thing. Children, there's a reason why you're afraid of the dark. Some of you adults, there's also a reason why you're afraid of the dark. Because you don't know what's before you. It's amusing, but my sister and I, and then the home that we both lived in, rather than walk down the hallway, we, for whatever reason, would sprint down our hallway. Just in case something or someone was planning to grab us into their room. It's an uncertain, insecure thing. This darkness that Isaiah speaks of is that kind of darkness that is not physical, but spiritual. Listen to this. There was nothing wrong with the physical eyes of the people. They saw the blue of sky. 
But spiritually, they could not see that they had rebelled against God. You may be speaking to some of your unbelieving, unsaved family members this week. And you may say, why can't you see this? Because they are blind, brother and sister. Because they are walking about in darkness, brother and sister. One of the marks of that spiritual blindness is recorded for us in the 29th chapter. And it is what Brother Bobby said earlier this morning. One of the marks of spiritual blindness is this. That people worship God with their lips, but their hearts, their hearts are far from Him. The spiritual climate of the people was that their blindness was a type that they could memorize the Word of God. They could say all of the right things on all of the appropriate occasions. But they had no spiritual perception. They are saying what they're saying, but they don't know why they're saying them. They are doing what they're doing, but they're not doing it with a heart devoted to God. As was prayed this morning, they show up to be seen by people, not to worship God. They, they show up even to appease certain people. Maybe this will fix everything. But it won't. Because their hearts are far from God. They could not see the kingdom of God. They could not see that they actually, in spite of how many times they said, oh, I'd love God. They actually did not love God. They could not see that they actually had caused, their sin had actually caused God to turn his face away from them. What a shame it is for those, and you know them, who believe that they know God. I love God. I believe in God just as much as you do. And they have no spiritual perception that God has actually turned his face from them. You can see it. It's obvious to you. They can't see it at all. What a terribly sad place to be in. They were like the church of Ephesus who did all of the right things outwardly. But inwardly they had left their first love. They were whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside but full of dead men's bones. They were in deep and desolate spiritual darkness. Again, Isaiah describes them as walking in darkness as in the, the land, as if, as if living in the land of the shadow of death. But this is why the glory of the gospel to those who are spiritually blind is wonderful. And it is that there was a child who was born who would be a shining light, God's light. He would be a light that would dispel man's spiritual darkness. What a wonderful thing it is, isn't it, to walk around in darkness and all of a sudden find the light and now I can see. For Isaiah, this is the glorious thing about the promise that God is giving. These people who are walking, living in darkness, that they would see a great light and it would be, of all things, a child born into the world. And you will remember that there was quite literally a great light that appeared when the eternal Son of God took on our flesh. The shepherds who were in the darkness of the field, they were led by what? 
in order to find the child. The angel of the Lord comes and says, you will find this child. And they were led by a light. A light that would point them to the light. The light of the world. And there is the God-man born of the Virgin Mary laying there in the manger. And the Lord Jesus would often pick up on this theme of the Old Testament in, in the New Testament and apply that to himself, would he not? He would say, I am the light of the world. Oh, and this puts the, his, his speaking of light into such great perspective when we hear Isaiah saying, you're in darkness, you're walking in darkness, you're living in darkness. And Christ comes and says, but I am the light of the world. He picks up on Isaiah's prophecy and says, I am that light that Isaiah spoke of. And he who follows me, him, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the prophesied light for man's spiritual darkness. You will remember how Jesus reiterated what Isaiah said. If the light that is in us that light that we follow to for our guidance, if that light is in us, if it's actually darkness, there is darkness within and darkness without. How very great is that darkness? Imagine those who think I'm being led by what I think is truth and Christ is saying, but it's actually darkness. Or I think I'm being led by what is actually light and Christ is saying, but it's actually darkness. And if that darkness within is actually darkness, then how dark is that darkness? Christ is the light of the world. You know well, John chapter 1, in the beginning was, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. There came a man who was sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through Him. He was not the light. But he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And Christ is that light. And everywhere in the New Testament, the great testimony of those who have come to living faith in Christ is this. When they come to Christ, at last they could see. The man who was born blind gives the simple testimony for every true believer who truly believes that it's this. Once I was blind, but now I see. Those who have been brought into the light of Christ will testify that he rescued them from their darkness. And it seemed as though there's not only light outside, but there is now light inside of them. It is the light of Christ. They were born anew when the light of Christ Open their eyes. They could now see the kingdom of God. They used God's word now to see the word that used to be a closed book to them is now an open book and they can see the meaning of God's word. And it is, as it were, a lamp to their feet and a light for their path on this pilgrimage for the first time. You will remember how it happened for Paul, who walked about in the, in the darkness under the alias Saul. 
Physically, he could see. He knew where he was going when he was going to Damascus. Until one day he saw that though he was physically able to see, spiritually, he blindly persecuted Christ. And his eyes were opened. When who appeared to him in what manner? When Christ appeared to him. And there was a shining light that blinded the Apostle Paul. And for the first time he realized, now I can see. Imagine that. Being blinded for three days as he was. And yet, now being able to say, but now I can see. We have one who walked about in darkness. Who lived and was born as a blind man. And his blind eyes were open and he could see that Christ was the light. And another who was blinded and who could not see. And yet it's still he could see Christ is the light. The God who said in the beginning, let there be light and light shine in the darkness. Has shined his light into our hearts to give us the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the world. It's the motif from the beginning of scriptures, isn't it? Into that darkness, into the void, God has said, let there be light and light has come. The prophet Isaiah sees the day when the forsaken people of Zebulun and Naphtali, that they will be shown a great light. These that were under, underdeserving, undeserving of such great light will be shown mercy. And Matthew, Matthew sees this prophecy fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4 settles in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Naphtali and Zebulun near the Sea of Galilee. And he sees Christ as that light which Isaiah said all of those years before would come to this forsaken land and to these forsaken peoples and preach this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. They did not deserve for repentance and faith to be preached to them by the one who was the very light of God. And yet God shows those undeserving people mercy by bringing them not only the light, but also the message of the gospel that the light brings. Repent and place your faith in Christ alone to be saved. And did you know, brothers and sisters, that while he was in those forsaken lands on the Sea of Galilee, that the light, the Lord Jesus Christ, would call forth Simon Peter out of his darkness and into his light. That on those shores of the Sea of Galilee, that he would also call James and John out of darkness and into his light. And countless others who heard the gospel, who repented of their sins, who left the darkness and went into the light of Christ. And oh, my dear friends, my dear brothers and sisters, what a glorious word from Isaiah that is. That this world that is filled with darkness, gloom, misery. And some of us may feel that these these things are not only outside of our lives, but they are inside of our lives. They are in our hearts, that they are in our souls the glorious thing is that Isaiah is pointing us forward to the message of the first Christmas. And he is saying, thank God the child has come.
that he has come to bring light into our spiritual gloom and spiritual darkness. Therefore, if you are saying this morning, no gloom is inside me, misery is in me, then hear the prophet Isaiah this morning say, then look to the child. The son who brings light. Secondly, he is the son who liberates. He is the son who liberates. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 3 and 4. You will multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. This child is not only the light to dispel our gloom, our spiritual gloom, but he is a liberator who comes to set us free from our oppression. Verse 4, for you shall break the yoke of their burden, the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. The prophet goes on in the 10th chapter to explain how this would physically come true through the assault of the Assyrians upon them. But he's obviously concerned about what those physical assaults symbolize and portray in the spiritual bondage of the people to whom God has called him to speak. There's a yoke that burdens and oppresses them. They were living under some kind of bondage and they were not being released from that bondage and they could not release themselves from that bondage. In addition, he describes as having them as having a rod across their shoulders, a rod that that would be uh, connecting them as if they were slaves. And it seems to convey the idea that the rod lay not only upon their shoulders, but that this rod was beating them down continually. The prophet gives this picture of a people who are absolutely downtrodden, of a people uh, who, no matter how hard they try, no matter how much effort they put forth, they are unable to escape the hand of their oppressor. And it is a picture of people who are kicked down, of people who are kicked down and kicked down, and, and it seems as though just when they're about to rise again, finally, They go down again. Their battle is always a losing one. And I know that for many of us, our lives, that is the theme of our lives for many of us. It seems like we're doing well, then all of a sudden, tragedy hits. It seems like we're doing well, and there's calm waters for a time, and all of a sudden, here comes the storm. And it seems like the storm has passed, and the winds have calmed. And here comes now a tsunami, and it seems every single time the battle gets worse and worse. Or as Isaiah said, the days are darker and then darker. But the reason why they are constantly in a losing battle is precisely because they only have viewed the battle and the victory of the battle from a physical point of view. Meaning this, 
they believe that the only way they can win the battle is if they get stronger on their own. The only way that they can win the battle is that they somehow muster up enough energy and courage and self-reliance and self-respect and self-love. Then and only then will they win this battle. But do you see the folly in their reasoning? That they believe the victory is found in, the, in self. They believe that victory is found in what they can do. In the hand of their might. They have only been a people who have seen a, a, the physical aspect of might as their primary means of overcoming the oppressors. Abraham. Moses. Joshua. King David. They are the heroes of old. They are the heroes of renown and God's amazing victory through them. For these people, oh, it's just a distant memory. They have somehow viewed those stories of the past, those great feats of God in the past, those examples of prayer and faith as the covenant Lord brings those heroes out of their distress. They view those as being out of touch with the times. That was great for that day, but this is today. Isaiah calls the people to remember, though. Remember the days long past for what God did in the rescuing of his people from the hand of their oppressors. And doing so in the most unlikely of ways. God would also do in their day to deliver them from the hand of their oppressor in the future. And he would do so again through the most unlikely of ways. And he calls them to remember a spectacular moment in the history of God's people. Remember the battle at Midian. Imagine he's calling them. There will be a day when you will be released from your oppressor. There will be a day when God will rescue you and he'll do it in the most unlikely of ways. Don't you remember Midian? Brothers and sisters, what was the battle of Midian? It was those days when the Midianite, great Midianite army was defeated by and in the most unlikely of ways. In Judges chapter 7, the Midianites were oppressing Israel. The Lord took a man from a small family of Manasseh, a man who was the youngest in his father's house, and used this unlikely man to defeat this great army. His name, as you know, was Gideon. And Gideon believed, like the rest of the armies of the world, that in order for him to win Israel, to win this battle, they had to assemble the greatest, most powerful army that ever could be assembled. For the Midianites were a strong army. And oh, but Midian fell into the same trap that most, if not all, fall into, except one. And it is that false belief that victory is won by the hand of man and not by the hand of God. How many times do we get ourselves enmeshed? In the most 
tragic webs of life. And we had done so on our own. And it is only when we are absolutely wrapped up and entangled that we begin to say, well, maybe I will turn to God and he will help me. Rather than walking with God from the very first step, the Lord would show Gideon the battle is never belonging to man. The battle is always the Lord's. It always belongs to the Lord. Gideon assembled 32,000 men in order to defend the kingdom of God, to break the yoke of their oppressor. And God said to Gideon, here's what God said after 32,000. Good job, Gideon. You've done a good job of ascending, assembling 32,000. Let's go to war. No. No, God said to Gideon, you've got too many people. Less, less, less people. You've got too much power, Gideon. Take them away. Send them home. Tell them if they're afraid to walk away now. Less and less they went. They would be fighting a, an army of at least uh, 135,000 people. And Gideon is looking at all of his men walking away and saying, Do you know what you're doing, God? Do you know who we are up against? And God was still saying to him, less, less, take them away, take them away. Until there was only 300 ragtag men left. And the response of the Lord was this, now, now it will be evident that the bondage that will be broken could have only been broken by God. Amen. Now there is no way that anybody could ever attribute, attribute the victory of this battle to you. They will only say in the battle and the victory belongs to the Lord. Dear ones, may I say that to you this morning? Christmas is approaching. And during a time of season when you should be the happiest and you should be celebrating the most, there are often some of the most difficult and painful and darkest times to be walking through because you are now confronted with, I'm supposed to be happy. And celebrating. But I've got all of this darkness that I'm walking through. And what will I do? Will I muster up enough energy to say, I can do it. I can do this. No, God is saying you've got too much. Too much strength. Not enough weakness. Too much of you. Not enough of me. Take it away. Take it away. Take it away. So that when this victory is won... It can only be said, God has done this. Only God can do this. 135,000 against 300 men. And the 300 men, what were, their, what were their weapons? Were they Uzis and machine guns? And No, they were armed with lights, lamps, pitchers, pottery, and a trumpet. These 300, not the 300 of Sparta. That's a tale of man's strength. No. This is the 300 of Gideon. The 300 of God. And it was a, a testimony to the truth that the battle belongs to the Lord. What does Midian, Midian's defeat have to do with the son that will be born? 
It means that God will deliver us from spiritual oppression and defeat. And he'll do it in the way that we always would fail to look. By a child. A son will be born. He will break your bondage. You mean my bondage will be broken by a child? Yes. And by his stripes you'll be healed as well. You mean that he's going to heal my soul? Yes. And by his wounds you will be set free. Doesn't God work that way? Doesn't he do that in that way? In the days of Moses, the means by which God delivered his people from bondage was a stick in the hands of a stuttering murderer. Who had been redeemed at a bush that burned but was not consumed. Oh, God does his victories in the most unlikely of ways. He did it again in the days of David, a young boy unskilled in war who could not fit in armor defeats the might of the Philistine army and their great champion Goliath with but a stone drawn from a brook. It's all teaching from scripture to prepare the minds of God's people for the most surprising ways in which God delivers us from our spiritual oppression and bondage by sending one who will come as a child, one who will come into an impoverished home, one who will come from the heights of heaven to the very depths of earth, and he will be born in the back streets of Bethlehem, laid in a manger for his cradle, a horse trough. And there will be no place for him to lay his head as he grows old. He will be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. The kind of grief with whom men and women, they hide their face when they see him. I cannot even look at him. And then he will be humiliated on the cross. Dying in weakness, in order That as the apostle says, God might demonstrate as in the days of Midian's defeat. That the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And the weakness of God is stronger than the strength and might of all men. Why? So that no human flesh may glory in themselves. God has done this. That. God in his majestic majestic grace may send to us a savior who will liberate us from our bondage of sin. Imagine that. The hero comes and dies for the villain. The strong made weak so that the weak may be made strong. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. By himself. As it were, breaking that yoke, bearing that bar, suffering that rod of oppressor, bearing our sins on his own body, on a tree, being made a curse so that we could be set free. And in his awful humiliation on the cross, even in his divine sense of desolation, 
bearing the guilt and the power that binds us and shattering it as in the days of Midian's defeat. No, Isaiah begins when he begins to think about it, pouring over it and, it, and, and being expanded by the wonder of what God was going to do through this child. I imagine Isaiah writing this down and saying, let, let me look at what I've written again. Lord, you, as I'm writing, you're saying to me, there will be a child. Who is this child? He is the seed that will be born of the woman that was promised way back in Genesis chapter 3 and 15. And Isaiah says, oh yes, oh yes, that's the child you're talking about. This is not crazy then. What I'm writing is not foolish. It is that child that you will call forth. It is that child that you will bring salvation through to many. He would not only illuminate our darkness... Be the liberator who sets us free from the yoke that oppresses and binds us. But my dear friends, in the last case, he would also be the son who leads us out of confusion. Look to the child. He will set you free. And look to verse 3 again in Isaiah chapter 9. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The government shall be upon his shoulders. What does that mean? The increase of his government. There will be no end. What does that mean? Contrast this description of what Isaiah says about needy people in chapter 8 and verse 21. He says this, they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that they are hungry that when they are hungry, they will be enlarged and curse their king and God as they face upward. Do you see what's happening? This is a, a horribly sad description. It's a horribly sad picture of men and women apart from God and apart from Christ. They are groping to find their way to give them some sense of, of direction and liberty and satisfaction. They are leaderless. They are lost, and they are blaming all of their woes on their king. And then they are looking beyond their king and turning to the heavens and cursing God. This is the state of mankind apart from God. They deny the existence of God, and yet they reject his lordship. They will not hesitate to point their fingers at God and cause and curse him for being the reason for all of their woes and all of their uh, dismal life experiences. They look to the government, no matter who's in office. You, you must know that. Be they from the left or be they from the right, they are all to blame for the misfortunes of man. The promise that the prophet gives is that there will come one who is born, and he will be born to be our leader. He who follows this leader shall not walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. They shall not grope about in darkness. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The Lord shall be their Lord. He shall govern their lives. The rule of their lives shall be found upon the shoulders of the one who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Isaiah is grasping, pointing to the adequacy of Jesus Christ as our Lord, Governor, and Savior. He is wonderful. He is enthroned in might and power. He's the Prince of Peace, and He will be this Lord, this governing ruler forever. His Lordship shall increase. And as people come to Christ, as they repent of their sins and turn to Christ alone and, for, and, and, and declare that He is Lord, His Lordship increases. He becomes more and more Lord over those who call Him Lord. What is it that we really need in our lives? In closing. We need wisdom, don't we? We need power, don't we? We need peace for our souls. We need love and care so that we may blossom in the manner that we've been created to live. But more than all of these things, we need Christ. And if we have Christ, then these things that we have just mentioned, they are a product of being in Christ. And what does he give? He is the wonderful counselor who gives you wisdom, who gives you the guidance that you need. He is the mighty God who will give you power to live a life for his glory. He is the prince of peace that will flood your heart with peace. Even in the midst of life's darkest nights and most dangerous storms. He is the everlasting father who will come to you with exquisite love and care. And you will discover, as Isaiah says, that Jesus Christ, the child given for your salvation, will satisfy your every need. And you will rejoice like those who are coming to a harvest. Do you know what a harvest is? I kind of know a little bit about this because I grew up in the country area of Fairfax, and down the street, literally one block away from my mom's house, my mom and dad's house, is a vineyard. And I can remember the days when we would go into that vineyard and just pick grapes and eat right off of the vine. But I also remember the days when the grape pickers would come and they would harvest the grapes. They're collecting. They're collecting what the fruit has produced. And it's now time for the season for those grapes to be indulged and eaten. Isaiah says that we will rejoice as men who plunder at the harvest. You know what a plunder is? It's though he's saying this, come, look what we've got. Look what we've gained. Come and get as much as you can. Gather it as much as you can. It's though he's saying, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and grace and power stored up in Jesus Christ, they've been released to you now. Come and get it. We're like people who are plundering Christ and saying to one another, look at what I found in Christ. You know that when you come and you maybe take of some of the grapes or take of some of the strawberries, look how big this one is. This one is so juicy. Huh? We're coming to Christ and saying, look at the peace and the joy and the comfort and the power and the wisdom and the direction that I've found in Christ. Until we've been satisfied in our souls with him, 
and found everything that we need in him. And in a sense, Isaiah is not just saying that we have everything that we need in Christ. Let me say this slowly as we close. Isaiah is not saying that we have everything that we need in Christ. He's saying we have everything that we need in Christ forever. Of his government, there will be no end. Imagine that. And because we are fleshly and sinful people, imagine someone came to you and said, you'll never have to pay rent or mortgage for the rest of your life. You would, you would fall out and die in your aisle right now. <laughs> what? We go, yeah, I know how. Let's just get east side for one second. Oh, you have so much more in Christ. So much more in Christ. And even during this season, dear ones, when you may look under your trees or look at what you are not able to provide and say, I wish I could do more. No, you have so much more in Christ. And you have it forever. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And that is what you and I need to know. Not only that Christ, the child born, the son given, will be light in our darkness, will liberate us from our oppression, will give us direction in our pilgrimage, but that he'll do so forevermore. So that we may say with Isaiah, the people rejoice before you, for unto you a child is given. A son has been born and he will be called the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And I am reminded of the hymn, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great redeemer's praise. Brothers and sisters, look unto the child that was born. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Let's pray.